You know, one of the things the solar eclipse, remember that, reminded us is people will travel to have unique experiences, see things, and be part of events. We all saw how people congregated in areas that had the best view, the best safe view. And they all had to stay somewhere, and many used Airbnb. I want to share something with you I was once told. One of the wisest things you can do when you host an Airbnb is find events in your area and let people in that community know that your place is available for out-of-towners. Many did this with the Eclipse. You can do this as well. Your home could be an Airbnb. Seriously. It doesn't have to be your whole place. I mean, it could be. You'd be surprised what people are looking for when they travel. It's simple and it's really, really smart. You might want to think about it. You could be sitting on a whole new revenue stream. Concerts, sporting events, conferences. People are always on the move. Your home may be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.ca slash host. Georgetown Chevrolet Buick GMC. And Custom Truck Center. I've always wanted a truck. Oh, oh my God. You're going to show up there this oh, afternoon. Yeah. Hey, I was the producer today. <laughs> You know, Elliot, I think that we um, we fully expect, and welcome back to 31 Thoughts, the podcast, by the way, folks. Uh, Elliot, I think we expect uh, this COVID break, much like other breaks, much like breaks every single season, to cost certain hockey players their career. Like, this will be the last time we see Player X in the NHL. But, you know, just, you know, realizing uh, the news that it's not just players that are going to be exiting uh, their professions, but agents and one in specific kind of has the industry uh, a little bit surprised. Yesterday afternoon was talking to an agent who said, did you hear about Mark Guy? And I said, no. And he said, we hear he's left the industry, that he's left Newport Sports. We sat down this morning uh, with Mark and, and talked to him a little bit about his decision. But did this catch you, Elliot, as a surprise? It did to me, and it seems as if everybody else seems shocked by this decision by Mark Guy. Yeah, it sure did, Jeff. No question about it, because you know he's a big part of a successful agency. Uh, by number of players, nobody's got more than uh, Newport. We know we keep in touch with a lot of agents. It's part of our job, just like we keep in touch with a lot of executives. And uh, the business is very gossipy. And whenever something like this happens, people are start going, have you heard this? Have yep. you heard that? What do you know about this? What do you know about that? And this certainly sent a ripple over the last few days as news started to seep out that it was changing. And, you know, one of the things I found it, one of the reasons I found it so fascinating was because... I think COVID and what's gone, what we've all gone through as a society has started to change some people's outlook on what they're doing and what's important to them. Mm-hmm. And certainly it sounds like in Mark Guy's situation, it gave him a chance to think and consider, okay, how do I want to proceed from here? And I think there's a lot of people, for me, it's, it's a very human story because I think there's a lot of people going through that. Absolutely. And Mark, someone, as you mentioned, who has or had rather a client list that is really elite, whether it's P.K. Subban or Alex Petrangelo or Steven Stamkos or Bo Horvat, Tom Wilson, Travis Konechny, Ryan Strom. He's a heavyweight, uh, as you mentioned, and he's also someone with a with a sterling reputation. What have your dealings with Mark Guy been like over the years? Well, understated, you know, agenting is a tough business. To me, honestly, it's probably the toughest business in the sport. It's fierce. Mm -hmm. You have to protect 
your clients from other agents. You have to have difficult negotiations. Everybody's grinding for every dollar. You take them from teenagers to adulthood, from being single to their first girlfriend, to uh, their marriage, to married life, to retirement, to successes as a player, to disappointments as a player, to getting sent down, to being traded. There's so much stuff. And some players are very low maintenance and some players are very high maintenance. Like a lot of the most intense conversations I have are with agents and agents as a group are very much you're with me or you're against me. And it's not an easy thing to navigate. I always thought that he was one of the guys, and we talk about in the interview, there were very few emotional moments with him. He didn't like that. There's something he says in the interview that I'm going to learn from too. If you're having a really angry, emotional conversation, just stop it and try again later. Like That's something I should do more of. That's something that really stands out for me from the interview. And I think that's kind of the way he was, is that... He never wanted anything to build up to the point where it could cause lasting damage because we're all here, like nobody's going anywhere. So you have to find a way to deal with each other. And here's the interview as he uh, moves from the agency business to the automobile industry. Here's Mark Guy, now ex of Newport. Let's talk about a scoop that we absolutely did not have and had no idea was coming, although we kind of thought it might be. Alex Petrangelo signing in Vegas, a seven-year, $61.6 million contract. Earlier this week, we reported that the Lightning had made an offer to Steven Stamkos sometime in the last few weeks. It's just believed that the average salary of that offer is $8.5 million. Obviously, I'm extremely pleased uh, for us to be able to announce that we've, as you know, we've signed Steven Stamkos to an eight-year contract extension. He is the future of the team, and the Canucks made that clear today, signing Bo Horvat to a new six-year, $33 million contract. Travis Konechny and Chuck Fletcher got the job done. We signed him for six years, $5.5 million AAV, and it comes out to 33 mil. Subban and the Habs hammered out a deal today for eight seasons and $72 million. What it's evidence of, Jamie, is just how hard these two negotiated on this deal. And then ultimately, P.K. Subban drew a hard line with the Habs. He was willing to go through the arbitration rather than accept less money than he wanted. And I think, you know, once everyone had a minute to cool off after that hearing, the Canadian front office decided that they would meet his demands, give him that $9 million per year over an eight-year deal and, and move on. And that's why it did ultimately get done today. Uh, Mark, thanks so much for joining us, and congratulations uh, on making the move. I think it's caught everybody by surprise. was talking to a, an agent friend yesterday afternoon who mentioned it to me, and I was shocked and surprised. Should I have been shocked and surprised that you made this decision to, to transition to a different industry? Well, uh, thanks, Jeff and, and Elliot, for having me on, first of all, and uh yeah, I, I think it's safe to say that quite a few people were shocked and surprised, including people within my own family and, and very close circle of friends. So as I've said to a few of our clients along the way here, 
The interesting thing for me and, and for us as a family is that for the last 24, almost 20, well, 24 and a half years, I've spent, as most people do in this industry, and, and you guys do as well, you spend a lot of time away from your families, a lot of road and lots of time in, in hotel rooms. And while it's been fantastic and I've really enjoyed it, at the same time, COVID has kind of allowed a lot of people to step back and, and look at uh, where things are at for them personally. And uh, I spent, in the last eight months, I've spent more time at home than I probably have in the previous 10 years combined. So I uh, really enjoyed that and um, was fortunate to to get an opportunity here that was going to allow me to continue to spend more time at home and uh, and spend some time with the family that I haven't been able to do and tough, difficult decision to make the change and, and a lot of uh, sleepless nights hmm. going through the process. But in, in the end, it's the right thing for me and for my family. So I'm, I'm really excited about it. I have a relative, one of my sisters. She lived just north of Toronto and her and her husband decided that they were going to go, they were going to sell their place and they were going to go to Collingwood. Their skiers, you know, the way that the office is going now, a lot of it's going to be done remotely. And they just, they, they made a similar decision to you, quality of life. Um, we're making this call. And so I think you're far from the only person, Mark, who's decided to do this. And, you know, first of all, how did you bring it up to your family? And then how did you bring it up to the other people at Newport? <laughs> did anyone try and change your mind? <laughs> You know, it was, so I'll give you a little bit of the backstory. So I've, um, I, my wife and I have a place in, in Grand Bend and when COVID hit and the office shut down, we transitioned into Grand Bend. So through March, from March, really through till probably July, we were spending uh, every day in Grand Bend, which really was its own little bubble and very few visitors coming in. And there's about 3000 residents there. And Elliot, you would know it well from your, your Western days, probably. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, so great place to go and, and isolate. And uh, one of my, my very good friends from business school, another Western grad, Ryan Finch, who's the owner of the auto group that I'm now partnered with, um, him and I would get together in, in our little bubble and uh, you know, talk a lot about different opportunities and different things. So he raised it with me you know, through COVID near the end of just prior to coming back to the office when we opened up again. And both uh, my wife and I have known Ryan for almost 30 years and know, know him very well. So we were kicking it around and not really seriously considering it for the first part. But then as the more we thought about it and the longer COVID went on, the longer we were at home and enjoying uh, being together. And, and fortunately, my, you know, those things can go one of two ways, right? Your, your wife can realize very quickly that she likes it a lot better when you're on the road or she can uh, enjoy your company. And uh, luckily for me, it was the latter. So Ryan can propose this as a, as a potential opportunity for us. And so the close circle of friends and, and some people um, that I really trust uh, in that friend group who also have some experience in the auto business knew and to say they were surprised would be uh, would be an understatement they were uh, they were certainly shocked but very supportive and by the time I I got to the decision that I was a hundred percent going to do this and with all the support of my family and I sat down with Pat Morris and Donnie Meehan at, at Newport who I have the most respect for in the world it was difficult it, you know I spent my entire professional life uh, with with Donnie and Pat and the group at Newport and uh, certainly uh, a little bit of choking up as we were going through the discussion, but they were extremely supportive. I didn't 
position it in a way that, uh, you know, this was something I was thinking about. I, I made it clear to them that I'd, I'd made the decision that this was in our best interest and great opportunity for us as a family. And, and both Donnie and Pat were shocked, but extremely, extremely supportive. Your last contract was the Ryan Strom deal. When that was put to bed, did you already know that that was going to be it, that that was going to be your last deal? Yes. Um, so we had had, the, I'd had the discussion a few weeks previous to the arbitration season with Donnie and Pat. And the decision was that, and this was important to me as, as well as it was to Newport, that I wanted to do as much as I can to, to finish off the contracts that we needed to get done for our players that, um, that I'd worked with for a long time. So, um, we did that. And in fact, after we had the settlement with Ryan, uh, Ryan and, and Dylan Strom, we had Dylan on the phone and Ryan in the office. We told him immediately after the settlement that that was the decision. So he was the, the first player to hear about it. And, uh, it was important to, to get that done. Uh, I would have loved to have been able to get everybody done. I still, uh, from my side of things, you know, from the NHL perspective, we still have Corey Perry, who's, uh, without a contract right now and, and Dylan Strom, who's going to be, uh, a player that needs to get done and, and Michael Delzato were the three kind of NHL players that I was still working with that needed to get done. But just from a timing perspective, we had to make the announcement and make the change and the group at Newport are certainly well, well prepared and experienced to handle that without me, but I'll, I'll stay involved to some degree with those guys along the way here until they get signed. But officially I'm, I'm in the office at my car dealership here now. So Mark, a who fought the hardest to say, are you sure? And B, what was the most emotional, I don't know if goodbye is the right word, but what was the most emotional goodbye? Probably, I would say Pat Morris from from the business side of things. Uh, Pat and I have grown extremely close over the years. And Donnie obviously is the president and, and leader of the company, and we worked very closely together. But Pat and I would travel a lot together through Ontario in the early years, and, and he mentored me uh, on the business. So real close relationship. And most of the players that I work with that come from Ontario, Pat and I would work with together. We worked as a team there, so it wasn't always just one person on the file, or very rarely was it one person on the file. It was always a group effort. So Pat and I were real close. So I, I think he probably took it uh, the hardest, and uh, and telling him and, and Donnie was, was real difficult. I would imagine that um, you're not going to miss the 2 a.m. Uh, Mark, I just lost my wallet. What should I do? Phone calls. <laughs> but what will you miss? I've been reflecting on this a lot, guys, over the last little while, and <laughs> To me, the best part about this business, um, the hockey business, not the agency business, but the hockey business is, are the people. Some great times over the years and traveling and, and telling stories at night and, and dealing with watching, you know, young players develop from going through their OHL draft right through to being NHL superstars. So the, the relationships and the friendships that you build, uh, with the players and their families. And then in addition to that, there's some, obviously some phenomenal people on the other side of the business that you, you battle with when you're dealing with negotiations, but you certainly, um, build some friendships and relationships there. So the camaraderie part of it, the, um, the ability to spend time with those great people and, and the friendships that I've made, those will be the toughest things to deal with out here going forward. But fortunately, in 24 years, I've made a lot of great friends that will remain remain great friends, and uh, I don't see that changing very much. All right, so you kind of hinted it there. So let's go with this. 
Which person did you wake up and say, I'm glad I don't have to see their face across a negotiating table ever again? <laughs> I, I'm sure you'd love me to answer that, Elliot, but uh, out, of, out of respect for everybody that I've worked with and against, I won't answer that. But in reality, there's some real difficult times that you go through in negotiations and, and there's times where the phones get hung up or you you storm out of a meeting either side of it and that can happen because it's emotional and um and you're trying to do what's best for your client and they're trying to do what's best for for the team but ultimately at the end of the day once that deal is done they're good people so uh, i don't think there's anybody honestly on the other side that i could sit back and say that i i never want to see again or that i i'm really glad that i don't have to deal with them again they're all uh, all the relationships are unique but there there's some really good people on it and you know, i'll tell you a quick story and and one that uh relates back to er- my early years and pat morris and i were working for mike van ryan and mike was uh, had been drafted by the new jersey devils in the in the first round of the draft and he was playing at michigan university won a national championship and back then if you were a college player, you could leave college as long as you still had junior eligibility and come back and play a year in major junior. And if you did that, your rights would become free. So you could become an unrestricted free agent. If you stayed in college at that time, the NHL team would own your rights. I think it was for four years. I can't remember at this stage now, but it was a long time ago. So we were dealing with Mike in New Jersey and um, negotiating with Lou at the time to try to get a, a contract. And, and we weren't thrilled about the position that you know that Lou had for Mike and we we knew what his structure was and where it was in place so we had a lot of discussions with Mike about that and and this was in a time when entry level contracts were very different and signing bonuses were much larger and and bonuses so what you were able to get in your entry level contract is different than it is today so after lots of discussion and um, debates back and forth, Mike made the decision that he was going to leave Michigan and, and go play in the OHL in Sarnia for his overage year, which from our contention meant that he would become an unrestricted free agent at the end of the year. We went through that process and um, and Lou obviously was was not happy with that decision and <laughs> was uh, was adamant that Mike's rights shouldn't change. And we ended up having a a hearing about those rights at the draft. I can't remember where it was now. I think it might have been in St. Louis. We had a we had a hearing that we had to go through uh, with that. And at the end of that hearing, the arbitrator decided that everything that Mike had done was was allowed under the rules, and that he was an unrestricted free agent for the purposes of that. And he subsequently signed with St. Louis. Lou was extremely upset, and we understand that from a business perspective. He was losing a great prospect and a first-round pick that he invested in, but it made sense for Mike at, at that stage, and we went forward. So that I could only imagine at that stage, and I don't know for sure, but Lou certainly wasn't our biggest fans. And uh, subsequently, the league went on, and the NHL Players Association went on to change the rule. And there's a there's actually a rule called the Mike Van Ryan rule where players can no longer do that. They cannot leave university just to go and play their overage year. In junior and have their rights changed so it was part of uh of a new a new rule so as i mentioned lou was certainly was not our our biggest supporter or fans at that time yet when we talk about great people in the business and i have the utmost respect for lou as anybody who's ever met him or dealt with him uh, i think would agree a few years later when my father passed away as i was dealing with some issues with my mom and her health at the same time i walk into the funeral partner and there's a, a massive uh, arrangement of flowers sent personally to me and my family from Lou Lamorello. 
Hmm. So there's great people in the business and that, that's going to be the toughest thing. You know, we know that this, um, uh, this industry, the representation industry is more competitive than it's ever been. And that's not changing ever. But from the time you began to right now, what are some of the biggest changes you've seen? It's a, it's a good question. It's something that we've we talked about a lot in the office internally. Um, probably the biggest thing, Jeff, would be just the age uh, at which people are recruiting nowadays. Uh, and I guess in in concert with that is just the the expectations and the the demands that families have on agents at such a young age nowadays. I don't think we've we've done any favors uh, as an industry with going out and recruiting 13, 14 year olds. Um, to me, it doesn't make a lot of sense. It was one of the things that I, I really struggle with uh, in the business. I know it's one of the things that the entire group at Newport struggles with that there's really no need uh, for anybody in our industry to be recruiting 13 or 14 year olds. And I think it sets a really bad example for the players. I think it sets expectations that are unrealistic. And, you know, as we've seen, as you, you know, you look at minor hockey in general and um you know this isn't meant to be a blanket statement but it's it's certainly something that we see when when you have eight and nine and ten year old kids being recruited to other teams to leave their teams and the recruiting starts in november of a season and they've got to play the rest of their year and you have other people and other organizations recruiting kids it just sets a bad a bad example for what the game should be about and in a lot of ways, it's driven by winning. It's driven by, by money and coaches being paid. Um, and then certainly when it gets to the older ages and you get 13 and 14 year olds that look like they're going to be a good prospect, it's driven by the, the money side of things on, on the agent side. So to me, that's the most difficult and maybe one of the most damaging things in the game today. It's too easy for the expectations of these young players to be set that they're the best things in the world and that there's no issues, no issue that they can't solve by just switching teams and moving to a different scenario. So starting so young is a, for me, is a, is a real difficult thing. I think that there should be something in place that prevents uh, agents and, and people on that side of the business from recruiting until an age that everybody agrees upon. Um, you know, when I first started, I think my first, I started in March of 90, seven and i had done some stuff with them before that but i'd started officially in march of 97 and i went to i remember going to at the time i think it was called the kobe cup which was the ohl pre-draft tournament and at that tournament mm -hmm. there were very few players that had representation already and that was only you know a few months before their ohl draft nowadays you'd be hard pressed to walk into a bantam game in toronto and and find a player that didn't have representation or didn't already have people all over them is there a way to fix it? Can it be fixed, Mark? Well, I think they've done a really good job in Sweden, as an example, um, where Sweden has implemented restrictions that you cannot approach a player until January of their 16-year-old year. Uh, and I think that's worked very well there. The difficulty here is, you know, there's obviously, there's a lot of competition. There's a lot of people that work for agencies that are, you know, just kind of bird dogging or, or helping. So it's going to be difficult to ever eliminate that side of it. But I do think that there's a way that if you could put something in place that players can't be recruited until at least their OHL draft year or their Western Hockey League draft year or whatever it is that it may eliminate some of it. The hardest part though is, is how do you, 
how do you police it? And I know it's a discussion that a lot of us have had with the Players Association at different times. The reality is the Players Association has a has a lot to deal with as it is and, and certainly very difficult in today's day and age for them to be overly concerned about what happens uh, prior to players get to the pro level is is something that's it's hard to manage so I think that something has to be done um, it would be it would make the game a lot better in my view and and certainly make the industry a lot better now that you're out of it um, I want to ask you this question what was it like having a two-sided business card on one side you're listed as an agent and on the other side you're listed as a family advisor you know for me personally the majority of the players that I worked with, Jeff, ended up playing major junior hockey. So mm-hmm. probably that that's a just the, a reflection of the fact that where I was centrally working out of Ontario here, most of the players knew about Ontario. But our goal always was to speak to the families and to the players and provide all the options to them. Let them know about all the options on both sides of the border. Um, let them know what was available and then let the family make their decision once they had all the information. So family advisor or agent at that age, to me, doesn't really make much of a difference other than you want to make sure you're preserving the NCAA eligibility for your players. Once they make the decision as a family, then it um, it shifts. But the professional side of it and the business side of it really doesn't start until you're negotiating contracts for them. I did want to ask you about two uh, negotiations you were involved with and you can tell us how much you want to go into this but I, I Alex Petrangelo was a big one this year and one of the biggest was PK Subban in the arbitration hearing with Montreal what can you tell us about those two very high intensity high profile negotiations well first thing I would say is that it, it certainly wasn't uh, just me or um, right uh, you know my involvement only at Newport and in both of those cases uh, Donnie Meehan uh, was lead on on both of those negotiations with myself mm-hmm. uh, Pat Morris Craig Oster Rand Simon we were all involved in those um, in PK's case the arbitration uh, situation uh, Rand Simon from our office does all the uh, arbitration prep work and the the brief um, preparation and then actually argues the cases for us. So that one was was really interesting because we had negotiated right up until the time that we walked in for the hearing. We obviously weren't able to get anything done, and then um, Rand did an outstanding job on the on the arbitration itself. And we came out of that, you know, expecting that you know PK was going to be on a two year deal, and and then we would move from there. And um, if I remember correctly, uh, it wasn't. It was about a day later. Uh, there was an, a ton of outpouring of support from the the Montreal fans and the media about PK's situation, and I, I think there was some pressure on Montreal to try to make sure that he was not in a position that he'd be leaving town in two years as an unrestricted free agent. So they reached out, and uh, we were able to work a deal out on a long term basis for PK. After that, prior to the the arbitration award being being handed down and and that was the the interesting part about it is that uh, you only have 48 hours following the arbitration to or it's up to 48 hours where the arbitrator can make a decision so if the arbitrator had given his decision while we were negotiating with montreal uh, the arbitration deal would have been binding so there was nothing that we could have done even if we were in the middle of negotiations at that stage so that was an interesting one and, and a lot of fun to go through and the arbitration process is 
can be a difficult one, but it's uh, it's a great process too because it forces both sides to get together. And as you see in most cases, very few of them actually go through the whole process. Alex's was a was a different situation. Uh, you know, we had a lot of discussions uh, with Alex uh, throughout the course of really from the time that he won the Stanley Cup a year ago through all this season. I think it's fair to say, and it's and it's certainly common knowledge that. His preference uh, throughout this season was that he wanted to remain in St. Louis and continue to grow there. Unfortunately, we weren't able to come to an agreement that made sense for both sides. And as we got closer and closer to the ability for him to become, I was going to say July 1st, but that's uh, that's not the way it worked this year. But <laughs> as we got closer and closer to free agency, uh, Alex became more and more intrigued with what might be out there. And, and we see that a lot with players. You know, if you're able to do something early on a on an extension, uh, it's great. It eliminates that kind of curiosity that a player may have. And as we continue to go through this season and get closer and closer to free agency, Alex and his wife, Jeannie, became more and more interested to, to hear what might be out there. And uh, fortunately for him, uh, one of his first choices that he'd looked at wanting to play for if he wasn't going to remain in St. Louis was Las Vegas. And, uh, and they came to the table once he became a free agent and we were able to get something done for him. I wanted to ask you a little, you mentioned with PK and I, and I remember that like the Montreal fans drove up the pressure. How much has the social media era changed your job? Well, it's, it, we asked a little bit earlier about what some of the changes have been, and, and that's certainly one of them. Um, there's a lot of positives to it from a player standpoint, and PK situation was certainly one of them. There's also, uh, you know, you run into situations now where players have to be very, probably more cautious and more careful of um, what they say and, and, who they say things to that they want to remain private and confidential. So there's a lot of, a lot of training and a lot of discussions with, with our clients from a young age and, and how to make sure that they're, they're careful and cautious in what they do with social media. As you guys know, being, uh, you know, ex- very experienced people on the media side of things, there's a lot of blogs and tweeters out there that come across as being legitimate media personalities but but they're not and it creates uh, it can create some issues and you know the one great thing about dealing with you Elliot over the years and, and with you as well Jeff is that we always know that when you guys are doing something you're doing your research that you've done it properly you've vetted everything and you know that we may not always like or agree with what the story is that you're going to put out there but at least you've done your research into it in social media times obviously there's no need for those background checks and it can create some issues. Can you share with us what the Stamkos process was like before he ended up re-signing uh, with Tampa? A very you know, interesting proposition by the Toronto Maple Leafs, a big presentation, uh, corporate sponsors uh, involved as well, the lure of uh, Stamkos, quote-unquote, going back home. Uh, what do you remember from that process before Stamkos re-signed with Tampa? Yeah, I can, I can share a little bit with you, Jeff. Steven's a very private individual so I, yep. I think that he's made it pretty clear that it's not something that he wants made public and and wants to to go through but at that stage um you know, we'd had negotiations with steve eiserman and the group in tampa and uh, again we weren't uh, at a position where we were ready to make a decision or steven wasn't at a position where he's ready to make a decision to accept their offer and he had the right under the cba to explore what 
else might be out there prior to becoming a free agent because we had the interview period back then. And Stephen uh, uh, met with a few teams, Toronto being one of them and probably the most public of, of all of them. They made a, a fantastic presentation to him and did everything that they could do from their end to try to lure him back to his hometown and the city. But at the end of it all, when Stephen sat down with his family, he made the decision that he had... You know, he grew up as a player in in Tampa. He had a great situation there. He, I know for him at that time, one of the most important things was that he was going to be in a very competitive team for years to come, and uh, and wanted to continue to to grow with with Tampa there. So uh, it's it's difficult when you you know talk about Alex earlier and uh, and Stephen as great examples, both captains of their teams, and it's difficult to leave a city that you've been with from day one. And for both of those guys, starting at 18, 19 years of age, mm-hmm. uh, you know you all your roots, everything you know about your professional career has been in one place. So. I think that's why we see a lot of players do end up staying in their in their cities when they have the chance to become unrestricted free agents. Okay, I have a couple more, and then we'll uh, l- let you get back to uh, overseeing your uh, new employees over there, Mark. Uh, first of all, I have been on the other end of intense phone conversations with many of your coworkers at Newport. Uh, Don Meehan, Pat Morris, Craig Oster, Wayne Arnott, for sure. You have always liked being understated. I don't recall ever having a really intense, angry phone conversation uh, with you. What is the angriest you ever got in this business? Probably, you know, my approach in most things is, is, as you said, to be understated. I'll tend to listen and, and go through everything that I hear before reacting to things. So, in my case, a lot of times if I get to a point where we were at a at a boiling point, we would just end the discussion and then revisit it another day. Um, but there are times when you when you have to mm. to fight hard for your players. And I know there was a few specific situations where uh, I felt that players were being either mistreated or mischaracterized, and and you get into some pretty heated screaming matches with management or coaches on the other side of it. Probably the biggest blow up that we've ever had as far as a negotiation goes would have been back in the uh the drew dowdy negotiations with dean lombardi those those were pretty heated and there was uh, a lot of uh superlative thrown around that uh probably wouldn't have uh, wouldn't have been good for primetime tv <laughs> actually they would have been great for primetime tv especially now people love that let, let me let me jump in quick here mark so elliot can't remember ever having a heated discussion with you can you ever remember having one with him no, I'd have, I'd have to think back to our our Western days when he was running the Western Gazette. I think it was called Elliot, and uh, I was playing. Did you play under Reg Higgs? Were I you did. there when Reg Higgs was there? Okay, so there is a story here, Jeff. So okay. Barry Martinelli was the head coach at Western for most of my time there. Very good man. I really liked Barry. One year, Barry did a um, a sabbatical where he went to coach in Norway. He got the opportunity to coach a team there. And they got he got replaced by Reg Higgs. Reg Higgs was a guy who was part of the Mike Keenan group. He coached with Keenan at times. And Reg coached for a year, and the players loved him. And I guess, uh, you know, a couple of players told uh, one of my coworkers that they wanted Reg to stay, and, you know, they felt he should have been the permanent coach. And my coworker, a guy named Gary Davies, who's is in, still in the business, 
he wrote a column saying that, and it was kind of a nasty column. And Craig Donaldson, who's been on this podcast, who's done an mm-hmm. unbelievable work as a doctor during COVID, he stormed into the office and wanted to rip our eyes out. Now, I don't know how you <laughs> felt about that, Mark, but Craig was really mad. Look, Craig is uh, is one of my very good friends and uh, was fortunate enough to play with him at, at Western for three or four years. He was actually the captain there before uh, he relinquished the the sea uh because he was going into med school and didn't think he'd be able to put the, all the time into it so it tells you a lot about what he is as a, as a person and i ended up uh becoming the captain after that fortunately and uh, and had some good years there and really enjoyed playing for both reg and barry but yeah we have a tight group and um martinelli had done a lot for all the players there in terms of just helping them get into school, helping them, you know, get set up. I know for myself personally, he toured me around town and helped me get a, into some housing in different areas. So he, he was really well-liked and well-respected. But uh, when Reg came in for that one year, you know, we had a, he, he was just a different character than Barry and he had a way about him that just made everybody feel real comfortable and guys really liked him. So Ideally, what we wanted was to have both of them stay and, and be involved, and and they did for a while, and it worked really, really well. But mm-hmm. uh, it doesn't surprise me that that Donnie and Craig Donaldson would have done that because he was very protective of everybody around the Western Mustangs. I just wanted to ask you about now. You leave at a time, Mark, where there's a real challenge because of COVID. And the league and players, we thought there was a CBA. There was one, actually. Mm-hmm. But now there's a discussion about potential change and will there be any? What's your advice to the players? Where do you think we're going? It's, uh, so I, I've been transitioning here for the last little while, Elliot. I haven't given much thought to it, so I, I don't even have an answer for you. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so just so you, I didn't leave the industry and come into, into the car business because uh, because of the times we're going through right now. That had really had nothing to do with it. It's just coincidental and, and really more of a, a family decision from my end. But you know, the, these are tough times, and... The, you know, the one of the things that we talked about as a group and spoke to a lot of our players about prior to the bubble and prior to reaching the, the new CBA that we're working under was that everybody has to step back and look at this and say, you know, yes, we're all paying a price and, and you guys as players are paying a significant price by not playing or having to take deferrals and increased escrow. But you also have to look at it and, and look at it from the owner side of things. And all they see, in, uh, not all they see, but a lot of what they see is what they're doing with their own business and in terms of the NHL and their and their franchises. But a lot of those owners are involved in, in other industries that have been dramatically, dramatically hit by the COVID situation. So you look at all of them that are in the hospitality business and hotels and airlines and those things. So so there, there's a lot of pain on both sides. And uh, I think at the end of the day, what they did was come up with a fair agreement that allowed hockey to to play we had some great playoffs in in the bubble and it gave everybody uh, some optimism that you know the next six or seven years there was there's going to be some labor certainty and and as much as nobody felt great coming out of it at least we had we had that set and we knew that we were moving forward and get seattle coming in so there's a lot of great things to look forward to it's disappointing on our side of the business or on that side of the business now to hear that there's a thought or a, a push to try to renegotiate things and um, move forward. I know from the players' perspective, they feel that a lot of them feel that they they gave up a lot to come back and play and, and to play in the bubble, and they put themselves through an awful lot and to be away from families and 
be in a hotel for eight weeks to try to do things to to get the season back and did all those things on the understanding that they were going to have labor certainty for the next six or seven years. So it's it's difficult. I can understand both sides of it. I, I hope that this situation that we're in right now doesn't last very long and everybody suffered on both sides of it enough. And let's let's just hope we get back to playing hockey again in January and and under the terms of the, the agreement that was negotiated a few months ago. Listen, this has been uh, a lot of fun and, and real interesting. Congratulations uh, on a wonderful career and best of luck with the new career. This is uh, this has been great uh, catching up. We'll, we'll definitely stay in touch. Good luck with the new endeavor, Mark. We appreciate it. And Mark, we should let you promote it. Like what Absolutely, is? Absolutely, yeah. You should be able to. Pr- you came on promote the new uh, <laughs> the new home. Well, if uh, if you guys are ever looking for a new vehicle, please come see me. So, I've uh, I've partnered with a, a very good friend of mine, as I mentioned, uh, Ryan Finch from from London. Elliot, you may know that name, the Finch Auto Group. Uh, mm-hmm. Ryan and his brother Jordan have uh, been great in, in asking me to come in and join them. I'm the managing partner of Georgetown Chevrolet Buick GMC, so just uh, just northwest of Toronto, and uh, have an opportunity here to, to work about five minutes from my home and and run a car dealership. So we've got a great group here, lots of uh, lots of great employees, and really looking forward to learning a lot about the business. It's a massive change and a and a big challenge at this stage of my life, but I'm really looking forward to it. Good for you for making it. Mark, thanks so much for this. We appreciate it. Thank you, Mark. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Elliot. You guys take care. And that's Mark Guy. And once again, we thank him for his time. Um, And to plug his business, it is Georgetown Chevrolet Buick GMC. If you are in the area and we suspect our producer, Emil Delich, may just make that phone call by the time you hear this podcast. Speaking of this podcast, uh, we do have some more on the horizon, an interview with Rick Vive. Uh, talking about his new book, Catch-22, My Battles in Hockey and Life. That was a really interesting uh, interview. Hope you can listen to that one when it uh, when it drops. And also, uh, more podcasts are on the horizon. So, like a vertebrae, we are back with more 31 Thoughts, the podcast, in the upcoming days and weeks. Thanks again for joining us on this snappy little pod. While riding in my Cadillac What? To my surprise A little Nash Rambler was following me About one-third my size The guy must have wanted to pass me out As he kept on tooting his horn I'll show him that a Cadillac is not a car to scorn. Beep, 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 beep. His horn went beep, beep, beep. You know, one of the things the solar eclipse remember that reminded us is people will travel to have unique experiences see things and be part of events we all saw how people congregated in areas that had the best view the best safe view and they all had to stay somewhere and many used airbnb i want to share something with you i was once told 
One of the wisest things you can do when you host an Airbnb is find events in your area and let people in that community know that your place is available for out-of-towners. Many did this with the Eclipse. You can do this as well. Your home could be an Airbnb. Seriously. It doesn't have to be your whole place. I mean, it could be. You'd be surprised what people are looking for when they travel. It's simple and it's really, really smart. You might want to think about it. You could be sitting on a whole new revenue stream. Concerts, sporting events, conferences. People are always on the move. Your home may be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.ca slash host.